Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Everybody, Doc Brian here, and welcome to Doc Talks DX, where we talk about a diagnosis that our guest uh, may have had. Hopefully, uh, you have checked out the first part of this podcast with Sergio Chicone, if I said that right this time. Uh, yes, and, and he is with us again today. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, being with us and being vulnerable and, and sharing your story. Uh, it's not always easy to do. Uh, so, we do appreciate you being here with us today. No, thank you. I enjoyed talking about myself. I told you that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of, I'm my favorite subject, you know, and, and a lot of people kind of feel like that could be arrogant, but you know, once again, if, if we're not happy and proud of who we are, then we can't really be happy and proud about who someone else is. I agree. And I, and I just, I, you know, self-discovery is such a interesting thing to me. I feel this, you know, you know, pulling those layers back and revealing is just, uh, it's super important. Yeah. But scary all at the same time. Absolutely. So, uh, Sergio joined us, uh, in, in our first podcast of dot talks and he kind of just a real quick rundown of his life. Uh, he was raised by a single mother with a sister. His father uh, was present in his life for, for a period of time, kind of on the summers would go down to Florida and see him, uh, his father, uh, he remembers in, about six years old, his father uh, using cocaine and growing up in, in the projects, there being a lot of drugs and violence, which initially uh, then led him into uh, some substance abuse problems as he became older. Sergio, in, in DX part of this, typically what we do is we try to match a diagnosis or or the clinical term, I guess, would be pigeonhole you into a diagnosis that that fits. I think that that your your social construct growing up led you into drinking and cocaine use as a coping mechanism to try to make everything stop, so that you could kind of process who you were as an individual. And and I'm just I'm just pulling out of thin air here, but would it be fair to say that you you were scared when you were by yourself? I, you know that doesn't pop out, and I don't I don't recall. Not really. I can't say that popped out. I I felt like I was a scared kid. I felt like there was a good you know, and maybe I was when I was alone, and I was alone a lot. I guess. So I guess that's correct. Mm-hmm. But as the, you know, I I, I just remember the feeling of fear being prominent, like at a young age, but I don't know if it's because I was alone. I just remember just d- definitely that feeling. Okay. So let me, let's not use the word fear. Do you feel like you were anxious or hypervigilant when you were alone? I don't recall. Okay. And maybe that's something I'm blocking out. I, I don't, I, yeah, Could I don't be. know. Yeah. Our, our brain has a way of blocking out trauma you know, and, and that sort of things, which you, you, you know, admittedly said that you spend a lot of time alone. Now, if you were alone, let's say 
on a street corner in your neighborhood, would you be anxious? No. Okay. No. What What was the the first thing that really drove you to drink? Was it more of the social construct that you were in or was it the curiosity of how it would make you feel? I think it was a bit of both because all the older guys, family members did it and they looked like they were having a blast. And out of my group of young friends, I was the one who was gun ho on doing it. And everyone was like, oh my God. And they would follow my lead to do it. You know, so I would, and, and at a very young age, I was able to drink in abundance. Like, well, everyone had, we all have 40 ounces. Everyone won't be like earling at just a quarter of it. I will finish a whole 40 ounce and then drink this. Mm. So I was like, it was like, kind of like this badge of honor at a very young age. I remember thinking like, oh, I felt like I fit in in that world. Like, yeah, I could drink and I could drink a lot and I could, and I could still be coherent and know what's going on. So, so was it more of a, a thing, uh, you use the word badge of honor, was it more of a thing to establish dominance or was it, hey, this is fun, let's do it? I think it was a little, a little bit of both. Okay. Yeah. So uh, growing up without a, a, a really a, a male role model, if you will, in uh, a father, how do you think that affected you in needing to establish that dominance? I know these are really hard questions and, and, and yeah, you've not yeah, received uh, yeah. any prompt here. Yeah. So there, there were times where I had a different, so if I was specifically in high school, if I was around a group of guys talking about women a certain way, like in a derogatory way, I didn't necessarily agree with them because I was raised by women and strong women, women who were pro women and taught me that women are equal um, and if not, like stronger than men in a certain way. So I've always displayed opposition against that sort of behavior. Like I never felt like I never I never clicked with men who bonded over putting women down. That was never my thing. So in a lot of times I wasn't accepted in those circles because I was like, well, you know, but I think that kind of set me out as an individual, you know, and then I just kind of like bonded with people who thought more along the lines as I did. You know, but I definitely felt there was probably a part of me that didn't know how to handle myself like a man early on. And that's probably why I took to the teachings of boxing and those sort of role models, because that gave me the, uh, I don't know, machismo that I probably was searching for at a young age. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't really, I really don't want you to think a whole lot about it. Just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. As a child, who hurt you? My father. Okay. And how did your father hurt you? I think just uh, when I, and I said, I think just going back at it and him not being there, but also I remember at a very young age wanting us, in Florida, there was a lot of animals and the farms and stuff. And there was a time he wanted, he was getting goats or, some, or something like that. And it was a specific goat that was very friendly that I wanted. He took the wrong one. So we're loading them on the truck and I cried rather than expressing myself. And he's like, what are you crying about, you faggot? You know, and he said that in front of his friend. I'm feeling really embarrassed by that. So when he said that, that hurt me. And I've never been hurt like that before. Like this is a guy who I don't see often. And because I'm crying because I'm a six or seven year old kid and that that's the wrong animal. And that he would talk not even to me like that, to his friend about me like that while I sat in the back seat. 
So when you ask who hurt me, that was definitely one of those things that pop up immediately. At, at that point, did you feel like you weren't his child, but more of a obligation? Yeah, I don't know what I felt. I just felt hurt. And when you say hurt, was it almost a physical hurt? It, it, it was more of a hurt that, that uh, it's a long lasting. I don't know if it was a physical hurt, but it was a, a hurt that when I heard that word, it made me very angry, you know? And it was a word that, yeah, to this day, it kind of makes me, makes me cringe. Like when I hear it used in that, in that fashion. So when was the first time you got in a fight over someone using that type of word towards you? You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. I don't know if I've ever been called that by somebody and got into a fight, but I, in the past, when I was trying to provoke a fight, I've used that, that word. Mm -hmm. Cause I was trying to last them in to right. that same pain. Right. You know? And specifically because they were very disrespectful and they weren't retaliating in the way I wanted them to. So I used that word. Right. I definitely knew the power it had on me and hoped that it ignited the same, you know, damage mm -hmm. to that person. I definitely know. So if some random person was walking down the street in New York and came to you and got in your face and shoved you backwards and called you that name, what would happen? I, I, I may, I may, I may retaliate with, would, uh, don't don't use the word may and try to sugarcoat it. You know exactly what you would do. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I have a lot of control. It, it really depends on the circumstance. Like if I see, honestly, it does because if they, if they hit me, I, I, I most likely would. If your daughter was with you and they pushed you back and they said oh, yeah, that, absolutely, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Okay. And why do you think your daughter makes the difference? I have a feeling it may be because I want her to see her father in the eyes of strong and a protector. You know, like you cannot see me weak and not protecting you. Maybe that maybe that's the ego side of it. I, I, I don't know. But yeah. Do you think it has anything to do with your hate towards your father for calling you that? Possibly. I, I would say probably. Yeah. And so in life, we kind of have these triggers, you know, whether it be a name or uh, whether it be a food, as we talked about earlier. We have, and I can, even looking at your face right now, I see that you're going to a, a deep place of yeah. maybe not hurt, but emotion. And you know what? That's okay. As you talked about in recovery, you kind of had to pull the layers back. Right. And it's kind of like ripping off the bandaid, you know, it's going to hurt, but it's part of the healing process is to, to get that bandaid off. Do you have any contact with your father today? Is he still alive? No, he, he passed away when I was 10. Okay. Okay. So shortly after my visits to him, he uh, contracted AIDS and my mother brought us down there. And he, the first time he got sick, he died. And uh, so I witnessed that in person. Yeah, that was, that was tough. Did you still have that resentment towards him when he died? I don't recall. It came in like in waves. So were you in his presence when he passed away? Yes. So what was the immediate feeling, if you remember when you knew that he was gone? I was very sad. Okay. Was there any sort of feeling of relief? No, I, I, I was sad. But once again, there were times where I would go through phases where it felt enjoyable to, see, to reveal my resentment towards him. It became like a fashionable thing. Like, especially, especially if, if I heard a certain song 
or read a certain story where someone was able was identified with those same issues. Mm-hmm. And maybe not feel I didn't feel alone anymore. And it felt good to express it. But I read a story about someone who was like, who had that shit together and they had like that sort of similar upbringing. It made me feel like, oh good, I could talk about it and let them and put my two middle fingers up to that asshole. Like it gave me that confidence to do so. Which but it is, came in waves. Which is the whole premise of Doc Talks is that we can talk to people who have been through this kind of stuff to give other people hope that they can make it through as well. So then losing him, knowing that he wasn't there, how did that affect your life moving forward? My mother was was very is, is strong, open, intelligent. I don't know exactly because I felt like he was never there. You know, like I don't know if he, I never felt like he was there. Nothing about his presence felt of like, oh, this is a positive, this is positive, you know. Except the cockfights. I enjoyed that. Except my introduction to farms. And to this day, I love animals. So I wonder if I, you know, I, I held on to that because that was so sweet. And I like that was something that I enjoyed. I just enjoyed the animals and the farm. And and to this day, I have a bunch of animals and I've, and I've always treated animals with respect. And I don't know if it comes from visiting him. And that's the one snippet uh, of a memory of my father that I hold closely towards me it might be that that's not necessarily true either because my mother allowed me to have a lot of pets as kids so i'm just trying to find out what the positive might have been for my father's influence but my mother we had a lot of animals in new york as well so it's hard to say yeah so is your mother still living yes okay and she i'm sure still has a positive influence in your life and supports you and what you're doing absolutely yeah all right so in 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 my thought process here, I would say whether whether you would consciously admit it or not, I think there was a lot of anxiety growing up. And that anxiety was the fear of not fitting in. Yeah. Uh, even more so than what your typical teenager would go through uh, because you had suffered such loss and, and wanting that inclusion, you know, with your father. Because uh, obviously you weren't well, I say, obviously, you weren't made to go visit him. If you had told your mother you didn't want to go, would she have made you go to visit him? No, my okay. mother wasn't like that at all. Yeah. Okay. So so there was this this inclusion. And so, I, you know, sometimes, well, some people look for that inclusion and they get into things and then they do things to be included where it seems like you were kind of initiating things so that not only were you included, but you were the dominant one in the inclusion. So, so what that tells me is that the anxiety that you suffered was as such that you had to go the extra mile to really feel like you were included. Yeah. And, and probably I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you still experience that today. Yeah. I mean, you saying this makes me think about my immediate circle, who I choose to be around. And, um, yeah. You might be, yeah, I think you're right. So, so let me ask you this question and I could, I could be completely wrong and it wouldn't be the first time today, (laughs) but when you do a show and you're not the headliner, do you feel like you don't put as much energy in that show? Uh, no, that's when it comes to, uh, to stand up. I, I, I was mad at stand up a lot and it wasn't stand up comedy's fault, but I, uh, I wrapped that around. Uh, promoting my addiction for an empty dream 
for, to anxiety because I never felt really comfortable going. It was always like the same shit. And then I, I numbed it with the drinking and, you know, afterwards, like dealing with rejection or whatever. It's just, you know, you're dealing with rejection and that sort of uh, environment all the time. You got to be really thick skinned. Yeah. So I kind of half-assed it. I, I half-assed, you know, and I always made sure I had something on the back burner, such as training and, you know, and being an instructor in boxing to show I'm dominant here while you might be better at this. Right. I never gave it my all because I, oh, I could do this better than you. But uh, to answer your question simply, I don't really, I don't have an ego about that. Anything these days, I have close friends who are the headliners and my stand-up comedy is me opening for the, up for them. And I do put the, the energy that is that needs to be put into it because I feel totally fine with that. Sure. So in the in the gym area, in, in training and in, in boxing, how do you feel when the person you've trained loses? So most of my boxing is fitness uh, oriented, but when I have had someone compete, when they lost, I was hungover from for that for a long time. That did not. I do not. I did not like that. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was. Uh, you know, it, it represented me as a teacher. I, I felt like it, uh, like I could have done, I, I, you know, I, I, I felt the loss. I felt like I lost as much as that person did. Sure. No doubt about it. So to say that to an extent you're an empath would be a true statement. Yeah. That you feel other people's pain. Yeah, I would say so. And you take it personally. Yeah, in some instances, absolutely. So if you bombed a show, you would say that was my fault instead of saying, well, those people obviously didn't have a sense of humor. You know, with stand-up comedy, I no longer do that to myself. I, I know that there are times when I know I didn't put the effort forward. That's definitely like, oh, I mailed that shit in. That was my bad. And there's other times where I'm like, oh, this crowd did suck. They, they drank too much because it was a late show or whatever, you know. But I, I'm really good at reading what's going on stand-up-wise. I'm also in a place where I do stand up more for fun and, you know, and it's very enjoyable to me rather than putting the unnecessary pressure on myself. Cause this shit is hard. And like, it's like already enough pressure. It's not the way I, 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 uh, I support my family. It's just something I, I enjoy doing. I do a lot of it. And it just so happens that, um, that I get paid doing it, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have the same pressure. You know, and I and I kind of developed the thick skin towards it. Like, I know what that was about. I have a good grasp on it. Okay, what would it take for you to use cocaine today? You know what, doctor? Sometimes it doesn't say it, the temp. I I don't know if I overuse it again, but the temptation can be quickly ignited by a smell, the weather. A, a familiar face from back in the days. It could be anything. Let me tell you something. That shit is never far away, like that feeling. But it does go away quick because I've exercised muscles to restraint and disciplines that keep that at arm's distance, a good, strong arm distance. Not like, oh, come closer. Let me entertain it. I don't. Yeah, it's a very strong arm. And that's, you know, the, 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 the disciplines I've... Uh, practice and it's things I enjoy. Nothing I do to to build that wall or that protection, I enjoy I I I I don't enjoy. And that's running, 
that's boxing, that's weightlifting, that's uh, spending time with my family. There's so many good things I've acquired through my sobriety that I'm able to wholeheartedly experience and enjoy that it really is at times feels like it can be penetrated, but I know it can be. And that's the weird thing about the drug that there's sometimes where it's like, oh, you've been good for a long time. How about this? You just had a great show. It's free drugs. You're not even in New York. You're in Wisconsin. And that girl wants to hang out. But I'm, you know, whatever. This crew wants to hang out. Like, there's always something. And I think all the other disciplines I have going on have overpowered that because I've, there's many different things that you can use in order to battle that. It could be consequential thinking. And I think about how I'm going to feel the following day. I think about that. And that's why I always keep a little bit of pain close to me because it's a reminder. You know, I never let, forget about it. Now, I always get, that's why I'm open about talking about it because it resurfaces. It's like some of it feels uncomfortable, you know, um, but it, it, it keeps me honest. Absolutely. Because, you know, really, and, and I think that even in the physical fitness field, you could say uh, if you need somebody else to keep you accountable, you'll never truly be accountable. So we have to we have to keep ourselves accountable first and foremost, uh, because even in physical fitness, if you don't want to get in shape, you're not going to get in shape. That's exactly right. You know, so anybody I'm training, I say, hey, I'm here to assist you. I'm here to motivate you. I'm here to uh, share some knowledge with you. But you have to implement this 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 set of ideas, this ideology, to your everyday living. If you see me once or twice a week, it's not going to do a bad thing, a damn thing, but make you feel good for an hour and want to be generous for the remainder of the day. But that's it. We're talking about longevity. We're talking about building blocks to where you're taught from me, what you learn from me, you're able to implement on your own. And then we can add another level to it. But you got to do it on your own. And that's why I've trained myself to do I do it on my own. You know, and, that, and, and a lot of the times, maybe 50% of the time, I don't want to do it. But I do it. Because I've already built up that, that, that callous mind. It's like, okay, I'm not going to give the power. I don't want to do it for too long because that never pays off. But doing it almost always pays off because it's like a relationship and it's a relationship with yourself, with somebody. If I was with a, a loved one and the relationship went sour, you could feel good about that and having peace of mind. You could tell yourself or tell the person, Hey, I've done everything in this relationship to make it work. And then some, even things I didn't want to do. And you got to tell yourself that when, okay, I, I did everything in my power, you know, and there's always more you can do. There's always more you can do and does not feel good. So people have to eliminate that. Like a lot of it feels shitty, but just imagine how shitty you're going to feel and how more toxic that is going to be if you don't take those steps forward. It's like, you got to weigh it out. Right. So if, if I were to give you a, a diagnosis, um, I would say that you suffered a traumatic, a traumatic life event that led into an anxiety disorder, um, that led into a major depressive disorder, which ended up a, um, substance abuse problem. I think that when you do something you go all out, you know, if, if you're going to have a, if you're going to go to the, to the gym, you're going to go all out. Uh, if you fold your laundry, you're going to go all out. You know, you're just going, you have that mindset that 
I'm here and because I'm here, this is what I'm going to do. And so I need to do it the best that I can with what I've got. Uh, and, and in hearing you throughout your life, you were kind of always that way, you know, here's a 40. Well, I'm going to down a 40. Well, Hey, you're not going to drink all of your 40. Well, give it to me because I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to give it all I got, but that can, you know, and even in, in certain situations, giving it all we've got is good, but then there comes times where it's not good, you know, where we push ourselves beyond, uh, what we should do. And so that anxiety as a child that really did not present as an anxiety as we would traditionally see it led into a major depressive disorder of where you had to continue going more and more and more and more to feel included, which then led you into alcohol, uh, marijuana, cocaine, um, and, and whatever other issues that you dealt with. And the way that we get to a substance abuse situation is to see what's underneath it. You know, if, if I go outside and I step in a, in a mud hole and I, then I tr take some paper towel and try to cover that mud hole, there's still mud underneath, you know, it's got to dry out. It's got to heal. And so what we try to do is we have this depression, this anxiety, and we're laying cocaine on top of it. Well, it's still under there and we've got to really try to figure out how to fix it. But here's the thing that a lot of people forget about is that that mud that's on our shoes, when we go home, we're tracking it into our house. But what I'm getting at is that the mud that your dad had on his shoes, he tracked into your house while you were there. And that affected you. That hurt of being called that name affected you more so because of all the other things that was going on around you. Uh, and you carried that. And so substance abuse then led to that mud being on you and you stepping into your own mud hole. And so what we have to do is un, unlayer that substance abuse, which it sounds like you have done an excellent job in doing. Thank you. And have to start trying to, now that the mud is dry, we still have a hole and we got to get something in there in order to be level again. And what you have done is uh, filled that with, with good things, comedy, boxing, a child, a relationship. And, and I would say this, I don't think that you would love your child as much had you not been through what you went through with your father, because you wouldn't have that perspective. Yeah, I think you're right. So what we can't do is say, okay, all of these things that happened to me made me do these things. What we have to say is all of these things that happened to me made me more equipped to love and to train and to be who I am. I say a lot of times what you've done is not who you are. You know, when, when I look at, at Sergio here, I don't see a, a former drug addict. I see a man, uh, just in, just in now for our listeners, we've never talked before today, uh, on our original podcast. So I know very little about you, but who I see today is somebody who's very passionate about what he does, someone who loves himself. And in doing that is able to properly love his family. The question comes is, what is it? And I already asked you this question. What is it going to take for you to relapse? 
And that, that was a very easy question for you to answer. And because it was easy for you to answer tells me that you are healthy. You are where you need to be because you're not at that point where you say, there's nothing, there's nothing that could happen to me that's going to make that happen. And that's typically where it will take place is that we get to a point of where we feel like we're bulletproof. And, uh, you know, I think it was Muhammad Ali, as I mentioned in the first podcast that said, everybody has a plan until you get hit. And, uh, I think, you know, Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson, Mike Ty- it was Mike Tyson. Muhammad Ali was fly like a butterfly sting, like yeah, a bee. Right, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. You're right. So, you know, and, and while those kind of are silly to us, they are a epiphany to life of saying, you know, this really is life that we always have a plan until we get hit. And so how do we move forward in these things? How do we know what is healthy for us and what's not healthy? Well, we try what we want to try. It took a lot probably for you to be convinced that you were funny enough to do stand-up. Absolutely. It wasn't just something that you said, oh, yeah, well, let's, let's try this. It took some convincing to do. Yeah, it took, it took years of thinking about it and then finally doing it. And, and, and you know, it's one thing I've, I felt like I've always been a little late you know, whether it's stand up, you know, you want to, you want to jump on that train if you're going to do comedy. Cause it's a long, it's a long journey. As always you can. I started when I was 26 and, um, you know, and I'm in a place where I'm really enjoying myself. I'm having fun with it. I guess it's toward the country doing it, you know, same thing with, with boxing. Now this started at the age of eight, but I, I, I fit it into my life where it works for me, where I'm able to pass on the knowledge and I'm still able to feel good at it. I got my own standards or what, what, you know, I got my own mold and, and it fits my life. And it's all, and, and what I like about the two is that I like anything else. The learning never stops, continue. Trophies or, and medals wear by other people or, or accomplishments doesn't always have to apply to you. I mean, what feels good to you? You know, that's another thing. I, I've learned that a long time ago, you know, worrying about other people's numbers, worrying about other people. Like, you cannot do that. That's the most violent thing you could do to yourself. You know, it's all within. And then I know it sounds a little corny, but it really is. It is. It really is. I mean, you know, and I know that because I know people who, when you see, they're at a certain place, but they don't have other things that are spiritual. They don't have, they're still, they're still avoiding them. They could be, they could have X amount of dollars, traveled X amount of places, but they're still a void in them. And we all have that void, you know, uh, it's a certain degree. But what I'm saying is uh, eliminating that noise in our head of like what someone else is doing, what someone else is thinking, and really uh, going back to like helping yourself and being worried about yourself is huge. And it's not easy to do, but it's the, I think it's really is the most important thing. Right. Because statistically, you should be a gangbanger. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we didn't even touch on that. They, they, you know, I mean, my father, what he said to me was violent and disgusting. But the shit that I, 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 I and that's a whole other thing. I mean, the, the level of violence I saw and at a young age, it took me years later to look back like, oh, that's, you know, that was, that's heavy duty shit. See, someone, I was playing uh, in front of my building, 13, 15 years old, 13, somewhere in my younger teens. And the guy was shot right in the back of his head. Boom. And it was a neighborhood guy that, that shot him. And we knew. And then right off the street with the gun like this. And I remember we continued playing shortly after that. 
And, you know, I've seen that sort of violence time and time again. You become desensitized to it. And that's a scary place to be. And I look, I look at my daughter, I look at my nephews, and I'm just so happy they don't have to experience that. Because you do walk around with fear, you know? Even though I didn't, uh, it wasn't evident at that immediate time, you take that with you and how you perceive the world, how you trust people's energy, you know, you, you know it's, it's, it offsets you in a different way. I feel like you put your energy into things that we shouldn't have to worry about. But because it's part of your immediate surroundings, it's inevitable. Do you, do you know why you are where you're at today? I think it's a variety of different things. I think my my mother was a, a huge influence on me. She uh, was a, a loving, but a hard worker and gave me the liberty to really explore the things and encourage the things that I was interested in, that I, I, I was curious about. She always nourished that. She always nurtured that, excuse me. Anything I wanted to do, she was in full support. So if it was acting for two weeks, you got it. If it was baseball, you got the equipment. She always gave me the tools to go after anything I was interested in. She was always, nothing was like, no, you're not gonna. I think the one thing she didn't want me to do because she was worried about was rollerblading because kids would get hurt, like get hit by cars and stuff. And boxing, she wasn't crazy about on a competitive level, mm -hmm. but she supported it. Like spiritually, she gave me tools. Like I remember she wrote, on the cover of the book, Invisible Man, and it's not word for word, but it was something along the lines where no matter where you are, you, no matter where you are in the world, as long as you have your books, you're gonna have the tools necessary to explore and, and navigate. And I think I mentioned that earlier, so my bad if I'm repeating myself. Oh, it's fine. You know, a lot of times we, and we're taught as children, that if we think of anybody before us that we're being selfish, and I think that what we should have been told was that if we thank ourselves better than anybody else, we're being selfish because we have to take care of number one first. You know, when you, when you get in an airplane, they tell you in case of an emergency, you know, this, this oxygen bag will, will come down and put it over your mouth and then help your children. Well, it's because you can't help your children if you are dead. You know, you, you, you got to take care of you first. And, and, and I'm going to say most of the time it's healthy to be selfish if we're selfish in a way of where we're taking care of us, but we don't always get the support that we need to take care of us. Right. And so, you know, let me just say, hearing your story, I'm proud of you. Thank you. I'm proud of who you have become. I'm proud of your accomplishments. And, and you said it at the end of the last podcast. To sum it all up, you matter. You matter. I, I, I have this mantra that I try to tell myself every day uh, is that I look in the mirror and I say, you are kind, you're important, you're needed, and you're wanted because you matter. And we need that self-affirmation every day uh, because we live in a world that tells us that we don't matter and that our feelings aren't valid. And so I, I just really, I'm encouraged by you and your story of being able to overcome in the midst of, of impossibility and that you kept going. And, and, you know, if it wasn't for you, if it was for your daughter, so be it. 
you know, you did it, you did it. So, uh, I really, I really thank you for, uh, joining us today on Doc Talks DX and, and man, I, I appreciate your willingness to, to share your story. Uh, it's an incredible story of, of statistically, uh, you shouldn't be where you're at, but you, you have definitely overcome. I really do. This feels, it's heavy. I feel a little bit of emotional right now and you're great at what you do. I felt very comfortable talking to you. So I appreciate your time and knowledge. Thank you. Well, if you're not comfortable, then therapy doesn't work. You know, are, are you going to step in the ring, uh, to instruct someone how to box that you don't trust or that there is some level of trust? Oh, right. Right. Yeah. No, you absolutely got to trust them. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, Sergio, I appreciate you being with us here today. Uh, I'm doc Brian. You can find me on Instagram, the doc Brian. Of course you can find us at our website, the doc There's a link at the bottom of my website for all of my social media. Feel free to follow us there. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Doc Talks. And Sergio, tell us once, tell me a little bit, what is your podcast about? So I'm actually going through a, a transition right now, but it's the Chicone Show, aka DBS Podcast. I'm such a scatterbrain that the acronym lends itself comedically to Dirtbag Stories Podcast. <laughs> Right. So we share a bunch of wild stories about, the, you know, before uh, uh, pre-recovery, um, but also lends itself to dogs, boxing, sobriety, mm-hmm. the acronym. So it's a comedic podcast, but I have guests anywhere from people who are in recovery to fighters to comedians. And I always like to have a nice inspirational twist, even at the grimiest, grittiest story. Yeah. So it, it lends itself to a bunch of different things, but it's a fun, gritty podcast with a little pepper comedic shine to it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, no matter how bad a person is, if you look hard enough, you'll find something good. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Once again, thank you for being with us here today. Uh, thank you for listening to Doc Talks DX. Be sure to uh, subscribe to Doc Talks on all streaming platforms. Of course, Doc Brian is part of the Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts there at BeFrankNetwork.com. And I look forward to having you join us again next time. Thank you for listening. And Sergio, once again, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Dr. Brian. No problem. Everyone have a great day. Goodbye. <laughs>